You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When they go to the theater for the first time, you see them on stage. And it's a very curious uh, moment because while they're in the costume show, while you're looking at them and while you're, when you're buying them and putting them together, whatever, however you're doing it, they're sort of yours as the designer. And then you go to the theatre, to the movie set, to wherever you go. Go on the actors and suddenly they're not yours anymore. They're there. Hi, everyone. This is Hal Luftig with my Broadway podcast network show, Broadway Biz, where every episode I will chat with my friends, some of the top theater professionals in the business, about the business of Broadway. My guest today is the incredible costume designer, Jane Greenwood, who has crafted the costumes for over 100 productions. I am so proud to have Jane on our team for the revival of Neil Simon's Plaza Suite, starring Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. Jane has contributed so much to theater over the course of her incredible career. I am honored, truly honored, she's here with me on this episode of Broadway Biz. Good morning, Jane. Thank you so much for joining our show this morning. Um, Before I ask any question, I just want to know how you are, how your family is, everybody okay, healthy, safe? It's been a a long haul. It's when we were told to come home on March the 13th. I didn't think I would be here this long, but it's been... Okay. Yeah, good, good. I don't think anybody thought it'd be this long. And uh, we're going to get to Plaza Suite, uh, you know, a little bit later in in our conversation. But uh, for our listeners, um, we were, that night that theater Broadway shut, we were doing our final dress. And the next night we were going to begin previews. Um, So at four o'clock, while the cast was rehearsing, they were told everybody go home and uh, we'll get back to you. So yeah, what a, what a shame, right, Jane? It was, it was stunning. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was. Well, yeah. We had two wonderful weeks and. Yes. 
the first question I want to ask, and you know, we're I hope we attract listeners from all different you know parts of life. Um, but I'm not sure that everyone knows what a costume designer actually you know does. So could you explain what is the you know the role of a costume designer in a play or a film? Yes, I mean it's a very wide range of. Um, of, of actually the, the work. Um, first of all, you are going to um, dress whatever the part of people, people are in the play in um, an attempt to, to give them the, the characters that they are, which may be very different to what they like in real life. First of all, it's important to read the script and talk to the director about the style that the director wants to go in for the, for the clothes, whether it's modern or period. And when you have a conversation with the director and maybe the set designer to know what the setting is going to be, where these people are going to be, then you can go and research what that channel is of, uh, of, of life and where you're going to look. And then you have to think about each character. You have to read the play or listen to the opera. You have to whatever it is, watch the dance. You have to really know what the characters are about. And then you can look at the research, have your thoughts about the character. If you have a live author, maybe you talk to the writer about what they feel about the characters, they're their characters. And then you sort of look at research, look at your imagination, think about the people, and maybe put some rough sketches down. Uh, if it's a commercial venture, you usually have to go to one of the big costume shops. Maybe you have to go to several and get a budget. And I think a lot of designers at that point tend to go and encourage uh, going to a shop or um, that they have worked in and that they have a rapport with. After all of that has happened, you... Um, you usually have a meeting with the actors and explain to them what the clothes are about, where you're coming from, um, what you feel about their characters. And I always feel it's very nice to have a one-on-one a, a -on -one conversation with an actor to talk about why you have designed it in a certain way and in a way that has some of their input. Because I find the first time you sit down and talk with an actor is very often the first sort of inkling of what they have had about the character, which can be very truthful and actually very helpful down the line. So I always remember those early conversations. And it's a very important kind of time when you're with the actor in the fitting room with the design with the designer, the person who is making it, and maybe even the, um, 
one of your assistants who might have shoes to try on, maybe have wigs which have to come into play, uh, maybe need to have the wig to see the proportion when they have the wig and the hat on. So you get the whole look of the, of the character. You do all of this, you keep twitching, you find the right buttons, you find the right trim, you find the right ribbons, you find the right whatever it is that's going to make that costume part of what the, what it, what the piece requires. And when they go to the theatre for the first time, you see them on stage. And it's a very curious uh, moment because while they're in the costume shop, while you're looking at them and while you're, when you're buying them and putting them together, whatever, however you're doing it, they're sort of yours as the designer. And then you go to the theatre, to the movie set, to wherever you go. Go on the actors and suddenly they're not yours anymore. They're there. I know that feeling well when you have to give it up. Jane, what a fascinating and and beautifully articulated uh, explanation of what a designer do I, I, does. I have to say I'm uh, I, I've learned something about and I've worked with you know lots of costume designers. So thank you for that. Um, I was curious because you said something earlier in, in your explanation about um, you know being inspired by the period or or you know the what the director's vision you've done three productions of the little foxes how did you approach that and each one i mean it's the same time period the location is the same you know for each production um how did you find the inspiration to make each one of those productions you know self almost explanatory well i suppose i did them at, you know, various times in my career, and uh, and uh, I was sort of looking at the period. I think as I've gone, uh, as I've changed somewhat, as you can't help but change, uh, constant. I think that I look at the play differently. I look at the the actors are different. The setting is different. So, you know, the, the proportions may change. The, 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 the yeah. actors are not the same. It was very interesting. The last production I did with, with Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon, they changed characters each night. So I had to think of the costumes for both of them. Uh, and it was very interesting because they're very different proportion in a way. The designs seem to work for both of them. And it, it was very revealing, actually, how, uh, you know, the, they were the right clothes for those characters. And they, and they put them on and, and they were. I grew and I learned more about myself as a designer. I think that happens all the time, you know, as you, as you look at things, you, you see it one way and then you have to look at it again, you see a little bit more and that's what happens. Wow. Were you a little daunted by the fact when they, they, when they notified or told you that 
they're going to be switching roles every other night, which was, it was a brilliant production, by the way, with both of them in it. And the costumes were stunning. But were you a little bit, how did you feel when you heard that news? <laughs> it was, well, let me tell you, I said, well, we can't do that because it's, the budget's just going to go through the roof. <laughs> and, then, and then we had to sort of be, be practical and think about how we could make that work. And it's a period where the skirts and the, and the bodices are, are, are very often separate. And we were able to use the skirts of one or two of them so that that saved a lot of money, mm-hmm. which was helpful. <laughs> yeah, that and is very... Um, yep. As, as a producer, it, I love that. <laughs> but, but it was also um, rather daunting to sort of sit with them both. And I remember um, Dan Sullivan said, we should have a meeting with the two girls. And we did. We had both, they came, sat in my living room here. And we we talked about the characters, all of us together, and what they both felt, and what I had, I had the costume sketches that I had, I had worked on, and showed them, and showed them the difference in sort of character of the clothes as the play went on. And they were very happy. It sort of worked. You know, it was very good that we all had that meeting together. Yes, you know, I can imagine. It was good to talk about all these things and not not just hope it's going to work, but really talk about why, um, what it means. Part of the reason for this podcast is to explain to our listeners how the financial aspect of Broadway marries its artistic aspect of Broadway. And you had mentioned, you know, meeting with producers and, you know, having to, the budget, you know, seeing the budget and saying we need more or we're right on budget. Was there ever an experience in your career where the producer said no, that the budget was way over and here's what our budget is, that you actually had to go back and sort of change the aesthetic of, of what you were planning? I'm not sure that I changed the aesthetic, but I remember when we did the Scarlet Pimpernel, the first go-round, hmm. um, Peter Hall was a was the direct director at the beginning, and he had a sort of almost like a f- film vision of it for this. You know, he wanted many people much, and it it, um, it was mind-boggling actually how many clothes were required. And I remember I did have to keep on going back and going to the shop, to going to the costume shop and cut things, cut certain aspects of it all and um it was difficult and i had uh, it was very large and i had it all the time i kept on getting calls saying oh can't you cut this or can't you do this in a different way and what have it was very very problematic mm. but yep. we did sort of 
get it together. But what was sort of interesting is that after a year, not quite a year, but that whole musical was redone. And we redid a lot of those again. <laughs> I, I didn't see the, re, the revised version of it, but um, I wish I had now because I would be so interested to see what you created for the, you know, the whole well, different production. Well, it was very different because it suddenly became much more tongue-in-cheek and more amusing. And um, we had uh, all the gentlemen dressed as uh, sort of in animal prints and way over-the-top um, clothes, which we hadn't had before. They were much more realistic, as, as I said, much more in the sort of um, film uh, model mode rather mm -hmm. than giving it a kind of you know in tongue in real sense of humor for the and it sort of lifted it all into being much more uh, un, much more welcoming to the audience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could see that having seen the original I could see how that version would work uh, for an audience, that it was just not so serious, but like this is a tongue-in-cheek thing that, that I can see how that would work. I just want to say you you asked about um, cost, and you know, talking about it, uh, I uh, I often feel that, that there isn't really an understanding of how many people are involved in say one period costume i take something like the first act dress in in little foxes um you know you have to have embroiderers you have to have stitches the fabric sometimes have to be dyed or sometimes the fabric is painted uh, you have to have painters involved sometimes you have to have the shoes made uh, the hats all have to be made. We have to have milliners. All those people, uh, all these artists, and they're all artists, have to be able to put all of this together. And it's becoming very difficult in New York because um, rents are very high and for all of these artists to stay here, and be able to produce these clothes for Broadway shows is increasingly difficult and increasingly expensive, which people say, why? Why does it have to be? Well, it's all of those people that are involved that um, are having to make a living and having their rents put up, all the little shops that used to sell feathers and fans and ribbons and things, they all had to move out of the city because of the rent increases. And it's, it's a serious problem. I mean, I say it's a serious problem. It is why everything has become so much more expensive. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. 
but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Wow. That is a wonderful explanation because I know that's that question about expense not only is on, you know, the producer's management mind, but it's also on the audience's mind. Like, you know, I hear this a million times a day. Why are theater tickets so expensive? And, you know, what you just said is part of that reason um, that everything that we create now has become just more expensive. And you gave a great reason why. The requirements and the, the the expectation, and you know these big musicals—they've got so much there up on stage. And where, how has it all got there? And yeah. who provided it? And who maintains it? And that's you know that's unbelievably expensive too. Yes, yes. You know, I I have a funny little aside to tell you. Where I live um, in New York City, it is the former home of the Brooks Van Horn costume shop. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, that's the... On 17th Street? Yes. 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 (laughs) Don't give away my address, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very convenient because I could walk there in the 90s. Yeah, but that was a great case in point. As that neighborhood became, you know, more gentrified, you know, they these costume shops, these warehouses, could not stay where they were, and they had to move out to Queens, which was, you know, harder for people like you to get to. I remember, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's fun. You probably have been in my apartment. (laughs) <laughs> before <laughs> my apartment um, and you knew it. when it was the millinery department right <laughs> it would be so much fun now to have you over and like remember what that building looked like in your memory and like tell me but what apartment see, my apartment was <laughs> exactly what you're saying is what happened you see Brooks Brooks had everything there they had a milliner they had the tailors they had the dyers and the embroiderers and it was all under that one big roof and and even they used to do the uh, circus the elephant blankets used to come back and were all put down in the basement because they smelled so bad but you know <laughs> everything was there now Everything has had to be dispersed, and there are very few costume shops that can have all of those things under one roof. Especially in a in a convenient location for yeah. folks like yeah. you, the designers yeah. or the actors. And because you know, the, uh, when the actors are rehearsing, the directors don't want their actors going for a long time. Makes sense. I want to just jump to Plaza Suite for a second because I have a question 
specifically about that. Would I should just disclose to anyone listening that I'm a little biased about Jane's costumes because I'm one of the producers of of the production. But uh, and in, for those of you who don't know the play Plaza Suite, it is three one act plays. Uh, it all takes place in the same hotel room in the Plaza Suite, but there are different periods of time. The actors, you know, are, are playing completely different roles. So. I wanted to ask you, Jane, when you started the creation of this, uh, working on Plaza Suite, and you realized that you it was the same actor, so the same physicality, but they needed to evoke a different time period, a different sense of who that character was. How? What was the process? How did you come up with these gorgeous, and let me just say, again, I'm biased, but they are some of the most gorgeous costumes I have ever seen. Um, you know, I mean, funny when they need to be, uh, thinking about the second act, serious when they need to be, and, and you know, actually poignant in the third act. You know, uh, so how, what was that process for you? Because that has to be different than creating for uh, a, a single show. First of all, Neil Simon has always written it seems to me in his plays, it's the same with California Suite, he gives you wonderful descriptions of the characters. And in certain instances, he actually describes what he thinks they should be in. And <laughs> it's like I've always said, when you're doing O'Neill, you might as well read what he says and do it. Well, it's a bit like that with Neil Simon. Because Neil knew what that character was. He knew those people. And he wanted you to, to bring those people to life visually with the clothes. And so he's, he, was, he gives you direction of it. And I took that. Mm. And also I decided to leave it in the period because the period is... It, it makes so much more sense of the play if you stay in the late 60s. And I think everybody felt that and wanted to, um, to, to keep that. And there was one thing that I did a little bit differently than the original, which was when the bride uh, comes finally comes in. And I chose to, uh, because... The period was showing so many young girls in very, very short dresses. And I thought, well, you know, it's, we don't have many people to, to, to really sort of hit home about what the period was all about. So I just went ahead and gave the bride a dress that had a very, very short skirt. Um, mm. And everybody loved it. And I think... It's just choosing the right thing for the character. Well, I re you know what? I, I remember that moment when we were in Boston and we got to the point in rehearsals where the actors were wearing the costumes you created. Um, and when we got to that place with a bride who the whole act we're talking about comes out, that dress was so stunning. I, the people in the theater were just aghast. You talked a little earlier about having to let it go. It's not yours anymore. What was that moment like? When Was that one of those moments where, as you said earlier, you have to just give it away and it's not yours anymore? 
Well, yeah, I just wonder, I was, I was very happy to share, because it's sort of also humorous in a way, because we've had such a build-up for the bride coming out of the bathroom all through the scene. So um, I, was, I was delighted to be able to see it work. <laughs> and make everybody go, oh! Oh my gosh, did they? In, in my career, I don't think I've ever seen a group of people just like be stunned in that way. I can't describe it in any other way. It was, it was electric. People just didn't know what to say. Oh, uh, it was, um, you know, everybody always loves to see the bride. And it was very um, interesting to do the, to, to, to design and, uh, think about the mother of the bride which <laughs> has to be very very uh sarah jessica has a lot to do in that way and i did find a picture of a wonderful um dior outfit from the period with that sort of wonderful coloring and i found a piece of fabric i thought it's here actually um that was sort of has all the colors in it. You could sort of see them all. You see that, that, that sort of. Yes, yes, yes. And, and that's exactly what her, uh, yeah, her dress, dress looked like. That kind of was, color. Which was that dress. Uh, oh, I've never seen those before. Jane, they're, they're amazing. They're amazing. <laughs> they could, you know, and, I've, just, I've just seen, I know our audience can't, I see what I'm looking at, but Jane just held up um, the sketch for what was to be um, the mother of the bride. And she also held up a, a like a color fabric color that was very reminiscent of the 60s. And it's amazing to me how both were, got incorporated into what became the final dress of, of you know, the mother of the bride, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, that, that is amazing, Jane. That is, that is great. That is, you know, I just, I, I need to, you know, because Sarah is so uh, tied you know, in terms of her reputation to clothing, um, was that daunting at all to you? I'm sure she had a lot to say and you two must have had really interesting discussions. Well, we did have interesting discussions and it was very, very terrific because we seemed to be on key with all of the choices and again you know we kept sort of going back to what was required in the script when the curtain goes up on a play the audience sees two things immediately the set yes. and the costumes is there do you what do you want the audience to infer from that first moment when they see a costume it's great if they sort of understand who those people are. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's, yeah. and, and I want them to be interested in them. It's no surprise to me, Jane, that you're so wonderfully articulate and about you know what you do and how you do it, because uh, I already know that you've taught costume design at Yale for 40 years. Um, Doing that, what is the most important lesson or ethos about design that you try to instill in your students? Well, I always tell them to look. 
and to look really hard, not just to sort of just not just to sort of casually look at a man's coat, but look at where the collar is, how wide it is, how many buttons there are down the front. Does it have a pocket? Does it have two pockets? Does it have three pockets? What is the how is the how is the sleeve set into the coat? Is it a is it a raglan sleeve or is it a tr traditional tailored sleeve? Does it have a cuff? How long is it? What is the fabric? Is it old or new? What is it? What is it about that coat that picks you? Makes you pick it for that particular character? You've really got to look hard, right. and much yeah. harder than people really look. If I if I told a costume designer any one thing that was important, it would be that. I, I think you're, you know, dead on with that. That you, you and that's why I was kind of inferring to you about the question about the curtain goes up your eye of detail which you spent a lot of time thinking about and figuring out and all of those things that you described the curtain goes up and an audience has to see that get that you know it's an overall picture for an audience member and i think your level of detail can only help an audience figure those questions out correct where we are who they are yes, those kinds yeah. of things yeah. and it, it, yeah. it's sort of ultimately the effortless although it might <laughs> take a lot of effort Staying with teaching for a second, I, you know, I read um, somewhere that you had advocated for students in costume, lighting, and set design to learn about their craft in a shared space. Um, why do you think that's so important to you as an educator? I thought it was a fascinating thing. but Well, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it, people always ask me about that. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a great deal of... Uh, to be learned from what other people do and how they do it. And I think that also the combination of being with designers who want to be lighting designers, people who want to be costume designers, want to be set designers, they all are s stronger at the suit that they want to be. And they can kind of influence the other people to pull them up along to make them aware of it. It's just, um, I, I just feel it's like all in the sandbox. Yeah. And they, they, they learn from each other. I think they learn a lot from each other. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the notion of them bouncing, not bouncing ideas per se, but if a costume designer is in the room with the lighting designer of a show, you know, the, the, I'm sure part of your choices of costume materials, colors, things like that are affected by what the lighting designer is doing. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's very good for a costume designer and a lighting designer to talk about what they want the look to be. And a, a lighting designer can want to have everything that's shiny in, 
in the room, including the clothes. And mm -hmm. so it gives you uh, sort of, uh, then do we talk to the director about, well, do we make all of these fabric, do we make all these costumes so that they're shiny and have a sort of ethereal, weird sort of texture to them? which is going to go along with what the lighting designer and the set designer has wanted to do. Well, they work with it, talk to each other about what they're doing and why they're doing it, the more they learn. Jane, over the course of your career, you've seen many eras of fashion, but you've also seen many eras, I would imagine, of American theater. Um, in your opinion, how has American theater evolved over the years? Has it? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, when I first came here in 1962, I think everything was still um, box sets, uh, costumes with a capital C. And then they started to sort of dig out the theatres and start to sort of move space so that you weren't just in that small area. And you began to see people coming on in sort of clothes that look like real clothes instead of costumes. But it was very slow. It was very slow, the change. But there was a definite a definite change in the way, um, particularly the Broadway scene changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say that, uh, I would say it was probably um, the 80s where the exaggeration of sort of the life that was happening. The 80s was so eclectic. And you began to see that on the stage, that overwhelming more, more is better. Sort of saying on that motif, is, is there a specific show or a type of show, either past or present, that you haven't designed yet that you'd like to? Well, you know, for years I always used to say <laughs> I wanted to design Rosen Cavalier because uh -huh. it, was, it was a wonderful period and, and I love the music and I love the opera. So I would always say that because it was, uh, it was something I would always have loved to have done. I still haven't done Rosen Cavalier. So there you are. <laughs> I, I did some quite a few movies in the eighties, and I loved it. You know, uh, can't stop the music and uh, uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. When I had seven men on the first day of shooting, all telling me they didn't like their ties. I mean, you know, everything is interesting, but there's something about the process of the theatre that I'm very comfortable with. Jane, I can't tell you what a thrill it has been for me and, and I know for my audience uh, to have you with us uh, today. Um, and 
shine a light on a part of theater that we don't always get to see. So I thank you tremendously. And uh, But I should say, before you go, um, I have three questions to, uh, that I need to ask. But And I the, the rules, I call them the rapid fire section. And yeah. the just the rules are, if I, when I ask you, the first thing that comes into your mind, don't overthink, just, you know, the first one. What is your favorite musical? My favorite musical is The Sound of Music. Oh, well, great, great answer. Um, okay, this one might be a little bit harder. What is the wackiest moment you've ever experienced in the theater? And by wacky, I could be silly. It could be like, I can't believe this just happened kind of moment. What, what would, do you have one of those? I suppose you you ask about a moment when it was wacky was when mm-hmm. I give Ben Hepner a peg leg in the opera of Moby Dick. And was it wacky? It certainly was a moment when he actually came on stage with the peg leg on and sang. Wow. Was was he able to maneuver it easily? Walked across the stage. <laughs> and it was unbelievable with his own leg tucked up behind the coat and the peg leg on. <laughs> and he weighed does... I don't know how many pounds. <laughs> oh my god, that does sound wacky. So so if you had to say the lesson you learned from that moment was I learned that you can do anything if you put your mind to it. But sometimes (laughs) it's very difficult. That is great. That is great. That's a a great way to end this this episode. So, Jane Greenwood, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Um, And I look forward to when Broadway comes back, and it will, for (laughs) us to finish what we started with Plaza Suite. How wonderful many- that will be, Hal. Yes, and we will. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm thrilled to have you. I'm sending you a big virtual hug. And when I see you, God <laughs> willing, when I see you, I'm going to give you a real one. <laughs> if we're allowed. Have you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Broadway Biz is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, is produced by Dylan Marie Parent and Kevin Connor, and is edited by Derek Gunther. Our theme music is by Nell Benjamin and Larry O'Keefe. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Biz and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Biz Podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.